Have you been thinking that maybe there's just a bit too much evil in the world lately? Not sure what is getting into people today. What is possessing people to act the way they do? The perfect time for episode 20 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, what if I told you that God and the devil made a wager, a kind of standing bet for the souls of all mankind, host Howard Castor. For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment. I'm especially looking for more reviews on iTunes, and I'd love to know what you think. Today, my guest is screenwriter Jordan Trapier, who has chosen the Keanu Reeves apocalyptic comic book vehicle Constantine, while I have chosen the new wave South Korean horror thriller The Wailing. Both were stories about characters confronting demons and great evil. To begin, Jordan, why don't you tell us something about yourself? Hi, everyone. Like he said, I'm a screenwriter. Unfortunately, that seems to be my obsession and my calling. I spend an abnormal amount of time doing that. I am a nomad. I love to travel. That often influences my stories. I tend to veer more toward magical realism and science fiction, psychological thrillers, and really anything that pries away at the concept of humanity and human behavior. That's what I love. Great. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, Constantine. First, some information about the film. Constantine was released in 2005. It was directed by Francis Lawrence and written by Kevin Broadbent and Frank Capello, based on DC Comics' Hellblazer comic book series. The character was created by Alan Moore, and the story arc used here is based on one created by Garth Ennis. It stars Juana Reeves, Rachel Weisz, Shia LaBeouf, Tilda Swinton, Pruitt Taylor Dentz, Jamon Hansu, David Rosdell, Peter Stormare, and Max Baker. The basic premise revolves around Constantine, a bitter man condemned to hell for a suicide attempt in which he clinically died for a few minutes and then returned to life. In a world that is caught between God and the devil, Constantine spends his time exercising demons in an effort to be admitted to heaven. When a young woman commits suicide, the police officer's sister comes to him for help to prove she didn't kill herself. But even before her arrival, Constantine has begun to suspect that something is off with the balance of the world because demons are finding a way in from hell. And it all revolves around the discovery of the sword that killed Christ while he was on the cross, the Spear of Destiny. Why did you choose this film? I chose it for a couple of reasons. I just love the film. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's one of those movies you can watch over and over again, which are my favorite kind. I love memorable movies. I think that it's how superhero stories should be told. He's a superhero in a very, very loose sense, in the sense that if you're saving the world, you're a superhero of some kind. It's got a very small, intimate scale to it. You are only following a few people. It feels really human and digestible, which is ironic considering half the people aren't human. You can participate in the stakes. Everything feels very immediate. Everything feels very fragile and vulnerable. I also chose it because I think it's a great example of just in general how commercial films used to be. All the loose ends are tied together. The character is super likable, but also is allowed to be flawed. And the premise is relatively simple, but it's still really compelling. Guy who's going to hell tries to save himself by stopping the apocalypse. It's like, okay, great. I don't want to go to hell. You don't want to either. And so watching him try and save himself and then by proxy and eventually, you know, taking on a stronger role saving Angela, I find that really compelling. When did you first see the film? I saw it when it first came out. So in 2005 in the theater. What did you think of it when you first saw it? Well, I loved it. 
I loved the world building and I love the pacing. I love, 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 love. It's one of my favorite things about storytelling that all the characters are deeply flawed, even when they're supposed to be perfect. It's a reason why I love a movie like Dogma or I love a movie like The Fifth Element. No matter how campy or outrageous they become, um, because the characters are so flawed, you can really appreciate and enjoy the story, regardless of how it ends up. It's a happy ending, sad ending. If you care, the, the story won. All the acting is fantastic in this movie. Tilda Swinton as Gabriel and Pruitt Taylor Vince as Father Hennessy and Jimin Hansu as Midnight. But I loved Peter Stormare as the devil. He was one of the first devils I ever saw in a movie where I was like, all right, this feels like a real somebody. This feels like a devil I want to know. It's not gore for gore's sake. It's not swearing or being abusive for any stupid, random reason. It's purely character. It's just him. That's who he is. And I think he integrated that very well into his person. Every time I get to that scene where he appears at the end, this is such a satisfying payoff to everything they've set up. All those delicate little subplots about Keanu Reeves going to hell and him being the one soul the devil himself would come to earth to collect. That's perfect. And you don't see it coming. And when he comes, it's fantastic. I first saw it, well, I just recently first saw it. I saw it over the weekend. You're the third person I think I've had on the show that chose a film that I had never seen before. I'd have to be honest, I think the main reason why I didn't see it, and I'll probably get into it a little later, is that the lead role is played by Kwana Reeves. There are a couple of things that stood out for me, and one is the philosophy and the theology behind it. It's a very unforgiving, I can't say nihilistic, philosophy behind it. It uses a lot of Christian ideas, but departs very significantly in one area. In Christian theology, especially in Catholicism, good and evil are not equal. So the world is not caught between two equal systems. It's not caught between good and evil. We're just in a world where God ultimately has all the power and just allows the devil to do some of the things he does. But in the end, God is completely supreme. But in this one, they've just created this world and they're just playing a game with all of us. They're not telling us the rules. They're not giving us a clear idea as to what's going on. Both good and evil are equally strong. It's actually much closer to a Monarchian philosophy. It's actually very strong. Star Wars. In Star Wars, the universe is made up of extreme good and extreme evil. They're both equal, and you have to keep the balance. You make the decision which way to go. It's the same thing here. What's even more unforgiving about this is we don't even know that that's going on. We don't know that we're in this game. And it's very existential, very interesting. I thought it was a very thought-provoking look at life. Not getting into Christian right or wrongism, that I can't speak to, but I can say that I don't necessarily think of them as being equal. I think of them as having laid the foundation for an equal playing field. He says, oh, angels stay in heaven, demons in hell, that's the balance. And they made this deal where neither would interfere on earth. Over time, you would just see how things worked out. It's a very evolutionary kind of look at life. I set it in motion. It's up to them. Which you're right is not in keeping with traditional idea of modern Christianity. I think more than that here, it's where they fudge things too. They say that it's an equal playing field, and it is. And they both say, well, one or the other can't interfere. That's not quite the way this world is set up. You have these half-breeds. There's no explanation where the half-breeds came from. The half-breeds are 
restricted in how much interference they can have over the world. But they're sort of like the angels in Wings of Desire, the German film by Vin Vendors, where they will whisper in your ear, they'll try to be there for you. The difference is that in Wings of Desire, the angels are good and only want what's best for you. In Constantine, you have both sides whispering in your ear. Sometimes they're trying to make you do better. Sometimes they're making you do worse. Both God and the devil allows it. They, I guess, just watch. And they're both equal. I think of the half-breeds more like a reflection of the storyteller's views on the character of God and the devil. If you just start from the, the foundation up, this idea of they don't really care about us. God made us and the devil made him a bet, let's say. No touchy-touchy. Everything goes on the way it should. And let's just see how it happens. All of a sudden, these half-breeds pop up. I think of it as like a way of saying both of them cheated. Both of them were watching and going, well, this isn't technically against the rules because I'm not interfering. Even Midnight, he tries so desperately to maintain this balance, and yet he runs a bar for half-breeds. So I think of it more as like a slight, irreverent take on the characters of God and the devil, where it's okay for them to sneakily find loopholes, and therefore it's okay for Keanu Reeves's character to eventually find a loophole. I think all you're saying is very astute very insightful. A great deal of art is trying to explain, especially if you're creating myth, and Constantine is also a myth. It's a mythical story. It's not just a superhero story. Mythical stories try to explain the unexplainable. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there good and evil? Christian theology, it's the fall of man, and we're born with original sin. Then you have other philosophies that have other ideas, and you get down to Freudian psychology and evolutionary things like this. People want to know. They want an explanation. So they create these myths. And Constantine, I think, is a very smart, very clever myth. It's a very clever explanation for why there's good and evil. We have these two sides that are playing a game with us. This isn't the only philosophy that says basically we're in some sort of game for the amusement of these creatures outside of us. But it also explains why there's good and evil, because we have these half-breeds that are whispering in our ear. And basically, God and the devil have agreed not to interfere, though I suspect, as this movie might suggest, if they got the opportunity to get the upper hand, both sides would do that. Yeah, exactly. Taking advantage, I think, is the idea. Well, it's something I've always found fascinating and horrible about human nature is that we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. This sort of takes it to the divine level of saying, my intentions were this and therefore I can sort of justify it. Same thing with Constantine's search for redemption because of his suicide attempt. You have this situation where everyone lives in shades of gray. Whether the game that they're playing, whether this wager that they're playing really actually matters is a a bigger question existentially. I think it all sort of exists story-wise to allow for not necessarily that Keanu Reeves is smarter than God or cheating in any way, but rather that they're all doing it. They're all looking for ways to be cleverer than they were or than they are. 
that competitive edge that is very common in us all. And it's something that Keanu Reeves' character shares with these two divine entities, one of whom we meet, the other whom we see a brief glimpse of at the end. I like that. I like that push and pull. I don't need things to be black and white. In fact, I, I prefer when they aren't. I like villains that you can almost agree with. It does give you a lot to chew over. It gives you a lot to talk about. And I love that. You mentioned the suicide attempt, and that was one aspect of it that I thought was a little arbitrary and odd. Constantine and the philosophy behind it is not exactly Christian. As I said, it's more Monarchian. The idea of if you commit suicide, you're going to hell is pretty much only a Catholic doctrine. No other Christian branch believes that committing suicide automatically condemns you to hell. Even today, most Catholics wouldn't even believe that anymore. And there are also loopholes. It's when Rachel Weiss goes to the priest and says, why can't she be buried in consecrated ground? And the priest says, well, she killed herself. Well, some priests would actually say, well, since we don't know what was going through her head between her leap and her hitting the ground, for all we know, she asked for forgiveness during that period of time. That's a loophole and we'll bury her in consecrated ground. It's even more unforgiving than Catholicism is. And I always thought that that was kind of an odd, arbitrary choice to make. I mean, the author needs something. It needs to have some reason and why Kawada Reeves is condemned to hell with no real chance of redemption. I think it mirrors Isabel's suicide, which I think is why they chose it. But you brought up a really clever thing that I hadn't realized before. It's almost as if God and the devil and, by extension, Keanu Reeves Constantine, they are all using loopholes to their advantage. Whereas the humans are the ones who are just straight black and white if you notice the doctors quit smoking or you're gonna die the priest says i'm sorry she can't be given a proper burial because she killed herself and that's a mortal sin she went to hell it's these characters these side characters that just pop in for a moment but they reinforce this idea of nope there's no sand to shift it's just that's the way it is that's a cool little reflective thing i didn't notice before I think it's very insightful as well. They don't have the knowledge that Constantine has, so they don't really have a choice. So not only are we trapped in this world where we're constantly having these half-breeds whisper in our ears to do good or bad, we don't know that we're in a game between God and the devil who are just looking at us and we're just amusing them. Since we don't have this knowledge, all we can do is just play by these rules. We can't use loopholes. We have to take them seriously. Yes, we have to look at it totally differently different than Constantine does. I do think that one of the things that interested me is, as I said before, this is a whole philosophy and theology. Sometimes I would wonder if people watching it know how deep this goes. This is just not a superficial comic book theology or philosophy. This is much deeper. This is very existential. One might even say it's very postmodern. What's interesting, too, is the very first scene of this movie, what would in a more recent film be dedicated to some sort of jump scare or almost spoiler kind of cold open where let me show you something that you're going to see later on in the movie. 
they do that in the cold open of this movie. There is a jump scare. You are going to see that guy again later. But it's purely historical and religious. It's world building. It's setting up this notion that this object and the finding of this object is the missing piece to everything that's been happening. And that someone, whichever side did it, whispered in this guy's ear to go find this spear of destiny hidden inside a church ruin in Mexico, surrounded by a Nazi flag, clearly smuggled out during World War II and hidden. That is a very interesting place to start this story. It's beautiful exposition, visual exposition. You see a Nazi flag, you see this thing, you hear this whispering, and then this guy survives a car wreck that should have obliterated him, and we're off to the races. They chose to start there for a very specific reason. I don't actually think you could get something like that done today because they wouldn't trust the audience to understand. But they did here. And part of it is because it had IP and a lot of people love the Hellraiser series. But I also think that it speaks to the world building and the confidence of the storytellers in the story. And you're right, they are treating it like mythology. We look at mythology today and we go, awesome, let's tear it apart. Let's make it bigger. Let's do whatever we want. But a few thousand years ago, 100 years ago, that would have been such a serious thing, you know, such an intricate part of a culture's life. They just casually, objectively went and said, okay, how do we weave this into Catholic mythology and the story of good and evil and all of this stuff? And you're right, it is a Catholic background, but I think it's fascinating how they were able to make it not just bigger, but digestible for a lot of people. You don't have to be a Catholic to understand that they're telling you the rules of their world. Really, that's such a big part of horror, sci-fi, fantasy see magical realism. If you tell the audience the rules of your world, it doesn't really matter whether they agree or not. They'll follow it. The other thing I loved about the movie is the cinematography, which is by Philippe Rousselot, or Rousselot, who also did A River Runs Through It, an interview with the vampire. It's absolutely gorgeous. That along with the art direction and the set direction and the camera work, it's very well directed, sometimes over the top, I will say. But the director has an incredible visual eye. You can sometimes enjoy the movie just for the visuals alone. Absolutely. It's not even just the background. It's the way the characters are dressed, the way they walk, what scenes from Constantine's life you're allowed to see. They show you how odd his apartment is with these massive blinds that open up to the sunlight. And he lives above a bowling alley where this weird guy who loves bugs works. These little details that make the world feel like it still exists when the camera stops rolling. It's not just that it looks like moving art. They show you hell. They show you this character's hell on a daily basis. Everything is dark and bleak, and yet you still have these moments of absolute beauty. Even when they go to hell through the cat's eye, just the concept of traveling to hell through a cat's eye is gorgeous. What are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? I really love how they introduce Constantine. I think the exorcism of the young Asian girl is beautifully done because he never actually says anything. He doesn't tell them what he's doing. You just know that a priest tried to do it, couldn't do it, and called in the best. Goes in, tells him to grab a mirror, tells him not to look, and the one that does gets punished. That's a really good scene. I also am, again, I'm just a huge fan of the Peter Stormare entire section of that movie. It's a very satisfying 
satisfying end to the story. Pruitt Taylor Vince's scene where he drowns to death, unable to drink. It's terrifying. Imagine desperately trying to escape this creeping dread of your own doom. He knows he's going to die and he rushes into this convenience store, this liquor store, and he's desperately smashing bottles trying to drink something and he just can't do it. And then it starts pouring out of him and he drowns in it. I think my favorite scenes tend to be more the action scenes. I think the crash at the beginning is quite something when the crook hits the character. You know, something's off because there's no way the car would be destroyed if it hit a character. I like the attack on the street with the cockroaches, the attack at the bowling alley scene where then he and Rachel Rice leave the bowling alley and all the lights start going off and he has to light. What they don't tell you is a piece of Moses' shroud, which is why it scares off the demons that they see. The special effects are excellent. It's very creepy. It's very well done. And this is a really good movie for how visually you can tell a story. You know, a lot of writers tend to get worried that audiences won't understand what they're trying to say, won't get the information they need. And so they tell them instead of showing them. And here you have one scene with Beeman where he brings him all of the goodies, the dragon's breath and the vile ampules of water from the river Jordan and the Moses Shroud. And then you just see them in action later. Speaking of Beeman, one of the funnier parts I found in the movie is when he talks about the book of Revelations. It just brought me back to the omen, which also talks about the book of Revelations. There is no book of Revelations. There is a book of Revelation, (laughs) but there is no book of Revelations. When he says Revelations, I said, oh, we're back in omen territory again, where they (laughs) seem to have this book that doesn't really exist. I suppose I have to say that the one area where I probably most strongly disagree with you, and that is Keanu Reeves. Sorry, I have to say it. He is one of the worst actors working in movies today. The only time I've ever liked him were in the Bill and Ted movies. I just think he's absolutely horrendously terrible. Have you seen I Love You to Death? That one, no, I have not seen. You should give it a shot. I couldn't watch The Matrix because of him. I just gave up after about 30 minutes. I said, I can't take his non-acting anymore. And someone says, well, he's supposed to be playing someone that doesn't show any emotions. And my reaction is, and he's lousy at that. Well, with that, here is a little bit more information about the movie. It cost between 75 and $100 million to make. It grossed $230.9 million. Now, that actually sounds good, and it's not bad. However, it's one of the reasons why a sequel never got made. At first, Reeves wasn't interested in making a sequel. He does seem to be interested in making one now. But it didn't make enough of a profit. And it was R-rated, which is one of the reasons why it may not have made more of a profit than it did. If it had made the profit that Deadpool had made, you would have seen the sequel really quick. In addition, the TV show failed. One of the purest, most bizarre parts of fandom is the creation of cult classics. By all the criteria that this industry uses to call something successful or not, over time, there are these movies that become bigger than they ever were when they first came out. They faded away into obscurity and then grew even more powerful in their absence. That, to me, is such a clear indicator, not necessarily of quality, I can't make that claim, but of something sticking in the human psyche, something that elevated it to a point where 
it became beloved by enough people to sort of make it immortal. I love cult classics, even if they're not my type of cult classic. I really, really enjoy hearing about them because I think we tend to value everything on a did it make money the first weekend it came out. But that's not really an indicator of whether it will have longevity in our culture. If you can make one that sticks around, you've succeeded far and away beyond what the box office says. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is The Wailing. The Wailing was released in 2016, and I'm going to be pronouncing a lot of South Korean names, so do forgive me if I get them wrong, because I probably will. It was directed and written by Hong Jin Na, and it stars Kwok Do Wan, Hwang Yung Min, John Woo Hee, Jun Kunamura, Kim Hwan Hee, Her Jin, Jang So Yeon, Kim Do Yoon, Sun Gang Guk. The basic premise revolves around a small village in South Korea where there are sudden outbreaks of violence, at first attributed to toxic mushrooms. A bumbling police officer begins to suspect something more is going on, especially after his little girl seems to be possessed. Suspicion falls upon a Japanese man who has recently moved into a remote cabin. Is he the source of the evil and can a shaman help save the daughter? And who is the mysterious young woman in white who tries to warn the police officer? I first must say that I am a huge fan of South Korean films. I think that South Korea and Romania are making the most interesting films in the world right now. What happened with South Korea is that at the turn of the century, sort of three things happened. The economy boomed, censorship ended, and there was a whole new generation of filmmakers. This set off a storm of new movies that have captured the imagination of film goers around the world. To begin, what do you think of the pairing of these two movies? I think it's really an interesting pairing. It's not one I would have necessarily made, but once you made it, I was like, I can see the similarities and the connections all the way through. They may be subtle, but they're there. It's funny because they have very tonally different characters. You've got the serious paranormal investigator desperate to save his soul, and then you've got this layabout sergeant who is scared of his own shadow. He really, really doesn't want to do his job. He doesn't want to do any of his jobs. He doesn't want to be a parent. He doesn't want to be a cop. He does not want any responsibility. And yet it falls on his shoulders to figure out what's happening to his town and to his daughter. And that's really compelling. He, in a way, is redeeming himself by trying to save his child's life. And of course, you have the paranormal connections, you have the demons, you have the question of what does this mean? When did you first see the film? We're uh, reverse twins today. I saw it because you recommended it for this podcast. It was on my list for a long time. I also love Korean movies. I'm a huge fan. I they do something that I really, really appreciate, and it's why I think they've been so successful lately, but just in general for the last few decades is they allow their character to be deeply flawed. Seen it in The Train to Busan, you've seen it in The Host, you've seen it here. I think it's the secret ingredient to great film is to let your character be deeply flawed and to not be embarrassed that the character has a lot of growing to do. Something that we used to do in American film and we're very, very skittish of it now post-Marvel movies. What did you think of the movie when you saw it? What was your impression of it? 
Well, it's very long, but I love long movies. And I think that it never made me bored. I always kept my eyes on the screen and it never wavered, which is always a great sign. What I really liked about it is that I couldn't predict what was going to happen to any of the characters. The deeper into this sort of cultural mythology we got, because it's not the standard kind of myth that we get in the West, the deeper we got, the more fascinating it became. They were very brave about not tying up all the loose ends, and that made it really interesting, and it's a cool film to talk about. I first saw the movie when it came out because, as I said, I've been a huge fan of South Korean films ever since I saw The Host. And then the second one I saw that excited me was The Chaser, which is the first film by this filmmaker. I've also seen Yellow Sea, and I highly recommend all three of these films, including The Wailing. You are right about the length. Everybody sort of seems to say the same thing. It's two and a half hours long, but I was never bored. It's like they're apologizing for it. Just be prepared. It's two and a half hours long. And I was also quite impressed. It has some familiar tropes of South Korean movies. South Korea doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for their police officers. They're constantly shown to be lazy or stupid, bumbling. They're often Keystone Cops types. I also find it very interesting in that it is in some ways trying to do the same thing that Constantine does in creating a myth. But if anything, the myth here is far more unforgiving than in Constantine. At least there are sort of rules of the game that we as the audience understand. We know that God and the devil are playing this game or they're watching this game and that things happen because of these whispers into our ears. But in the wailing, we don't know what the rules are. Nobody knows what the rules are. You're given a choice between good and evil. You don't know which one is good. You don't know which one is evil. You're supposed to have faith, but you're not given any reason that you should have more faith in the woman in white than in the Japanese gentleman. It does not end happily like Constantine does. I mean, I'm not saying Constantine is a perfectly happily ever after ending, but Constantine lives. He's under a sort of curse, but he lives. Things are returned to normal. He defeats the evil. That does not happen here. It ends on an almost nihilistic approach to life. And it not only uses Christian religion, because Christianity is very big in South Korea, but it uses other religions as well. It takes horror tropes and religious tropes from all these different areas and trying to create this myth. And it's just a very unforgiving It's a movie that people often say that even if you don't understand it, because I doubt anybody really understands it and everybody has their own explanation as to what happens, especially at the end, it doesn't matter in a way. You're still invested in it. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say about this movie is that it's an, an absolute experience. It's like The Lighthouse, the most recent movie from last year. The feeling you get while watching it is just this sinking into a quagmire. It's like quicksand you just keep sinking deeper and deeper at first it's kind of fun you're like oh this guy what on earth why is he in this job why are they letting him do this job and then over time you start to feel this sinking dread that it wouldn't matter if he were the smartest man on earth there's no escaping this despair that's going to take over this town for whatever reason it's happening that's almost incidental at the end of the day i don't know how to describe it it's just an experience where it never really lets up it doesn't apologize for how brutal it is. And yet it's still really fascinating as you start to peel away these layers of 
is this just xenophobia that they just don't like this Japanese guy or is there something really there? Who is this shaman? And when he goes to conduct this ritual, well, our main character, this dopey oaf, he messes up the ritual. So is it his fault that his daughter becomes this devilish monster by the end, this puppet of this demon that exists in this Japanese man? Or if he had gone through with the ritual, would it have mattered at all? And That's is the shaman actually the good guy? Yeah, exactly. Don't, you don't know. Yes, and, by the end, we, we're not sure whose side the shaman is on. And it's also possible that he actually changes sides. It's kind of cool. I kind of like that because I feel like one of the big things that American movies try to avoid is this feeling of not hopelessness, but helplessness. Except for in horror movies, we don't like characters that there's nothing they can do. And even in horror movies, we want to see them fight before they give in. You need that sense of, I can fix things. And then, oh, nope, you made a mistake or something went wrong. You can't fix it. So you just have to deal with it. We try to avoid that helplessness in Western cinema. It's really compelling to me because that's how you would react in that situation. We would have no concept of how to deal with a demon running amok in our town. We love the concept of a person swooping in to save the day of a hero going, I've got this. Everything's going to be fine. But that's not what would happen. I do agree with this helplessness, this idea of, is there anything that can be done, even if we try to do something? And I do sometimes wonder, if I'm not saying it's purposeful, but might be a reflection of how South Korea sees itself in the world. South Korea politically, in many ways, has no power. It's caught between Korea, Russia, China, Japan, and the United States. It's sort of at everybody's mercy. It really does not have any real strong ability to have control over its existence. Add to that the history of Japan and South Korea. It's not a very good history because Japan took over South Korea for a very long time, which ended with World War II, and treated South Korea as badly as they treated China. Add to that, South Korea has a lot of religion. It has Christianity and not just Catholicism. It has a very strong Protestant area. They have megachurches, just like we do here. But they also have Buddhism and other forms like that. In this movie, you have the Catholic priest who comes to help and can't really do much and then takes him to his superior, who basically tells him, there's nothing the church can do. You're on your own. Then you have the shaman, and we don't know whose side he's ultimately on. And so you have this poor guy just caught with absolutely no knowledge or the ability to obtain knowledge that will let him make a decision. He has to make a decision on faith, but... And he, he often no puts his faith in the wrong place. Right. He has no reason to believe that putting faith in the woman in white is any better than putting faith in the Japanese man. Which is really compelling. That's a really cool crucible to exist in. It is so different. And I call it brave because, frankly, I love movies like that where you really just have to hold on for dear life and hope that in the end something works out. Well, we don't get enough of those stories because they're kind of depressing and because there's a lot of depressing stuff happening in the world right now. So it makes sense that we want our happy endings. Bittersweet endings. This is not bittersweet. Those mixture endings where things are left unsaid or undone or things aren't as happy as we would expect them to be often become the endings we remember most, the ones that stick with us the longest. If you look at Atonement or you look at The Mist, the reason those movies became what they were is because in the end you're sitting there going, oh, that's devastating to find out this bittersweet or terrible, well-meaning thing has happened. And this movie did it really well. 
where it just leaves you to sit with this man who's utterly destroyed with a family that's dead on the floor, not knowing whether or not he picked the right side. Obviously, he didn't. But at the end of the day, she told him not to go home. The ghost, the woman who people say is a ghost, told him not to go home and it would undo her trap if he did and everyone would die. But they're already dead by the time he gets home. And so you're sitting there going, whoa, maybe he could have saved their lives if he had left early. It's very ambiguous. Yeah, exactly. What are some of your favorite scenes for the movie? I love the rock throwing scene. I think it's such a strange, fun way of introducing. It's very symbolic because it refers to the Bible. Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. It basically says that she's without sin because she's casting stones. Which brings up an interesting question later when the shaman begins vomiting up blood when he sees her. But some people say that at that point he switched sides. And so that's why she's stopping him. I've read a couple of things. I've gone on YouTube. I've seen different people's interpretation of the ending. So maybe, maybe not, whatever, you know. I don't know if I necessarily believe that he switched sides. I think that if he was on the Japanese guy's side, he probably was from the beginning. This urge to go meet with a shaman, you know, we've got to take her to a shaman. And we found the shaman. That's sort of the way snake oil salesmen and like those healers work. As far as the woman and the shaman and the Japanese guy are concerned. My thing is all of them, in a way, similar to Constantine, they all seem to be gambling on other people's lives. She doesn't have anything to gain. The Japanese guy doesn't have anything to gain because he doesn't even eat the people. He just eats the deer in the forest and scares everyone and turns them into zombies. And then the shaman is just raking in the dough wherever he can. But they're all gambling with people's existences. You don't know what their powers are at any given moment until the very end. And even then, the only one you know for sure is the demon. Certainly some of the highlights, the scene with the daughter after she catches her father having sex with her mother in the car, and then he takes her out and buys her a lot of stuff, spoils her, says, you're okay with seeing your parents have sex in the car? And she says, well, not the first time. But certainly the shaman scene, the ritual, is really quite a scene. It's beautifully done. I love the parallel between his and the demon's ceremonies. They make the comparison with the white chickens versus the black chickens, the white goat versus the black goat. You've got this one guy alone in this room, very small, cloistered, hidden away. And then you have this man with his entourage doing this giant ceremony. In between them is this girl who's starting to suffer as soon as the ritual begins. It's beautiful. It's beautifully shot. Can't look away. There is a deleted ending. Have you seen that? I have not seen it, but I know what it is. I wish they would have included it. It certainly wouldn't have explained things. I still would come away with tons of questions. But I think it would have helped make things a little more sense, especially in that we now know that the Japanese gentleman is just going to go someplace else and do the same thing. And this is just what he does. The woman in white is going to follow him and try to stop him. It's probably not going to work. And that's another mythical explanation for why things happen in this world. We don't really know why. We don't know what village he's going to go to. We don't know what village he's come from. When things again stabilize, then bad things are going to happen someplace 
Oh, but I like the ending. You can find it on YouTube, and I do recommend it. I also want to point out that one of the other things it has, I think, with Constantine is the incredible cinematography by Jung Kyo Hong, who is one of South Korea's greatest cinematographers. It looks incredible. He also did Parasite, Burning, Snowpiercer, Mother. It is a stunning film to look at, just like Constantine. It's a film that you can often just look at visually and be invested in. And you notice that these films that have this robust world building, they have a different feeling than a lot of programmer films that kind of disappear by the wayside. There's a sense of intention to every little detail that you see. It's not an accident. It takes an enormous amount of effort to make that happen. And in all of these movies, it's that sense of not just three dimension, but four dimensions. If you looked away, things would continue. At the end of this movie, when these creatures move on to another village to pollute them and torture them, this village continues to exist. That's the beauty of cinema. That's the power of cinema. Here's some more information about the film. It cost $8 million and it made $51.3 million. It is one of South Korea's biggest hits for that year. It's also one of its biggest critically acclaimed movies, getting numerous either awards or nominations. Jun Kunimura, who plays the Japanese gentleman, many people in the U.S. might recognize from Kill Bill Volume 1, where he plays Boss Tanaka. He was also in The Audition, which was the last horror film he made before he made The Wailing. So I think he said it was something like 20 years in between. Is there anything else you might want to add about this film or about Constantine or about both films? They're absolutely worth watching. The most compelling questions we ask in cinema are how do we respond in the face of overwhelming odds, obstacles that aren't just larger than we are, but unknowable, uncomparable to the world we live in on a day to day basis. They don't just take us out of our status quo. They rip us from our status quo force you to expand what you believe is possible. Both of these films do that, and they do them in very intimate ways. Small groups of people, even the scenes in The Wailing with a group of people in them, you're really only focused on a few. And it gives the sense of you're sitting there with these people, you're in the scenes with them. This creeping dread that sort of permeates both films as you wait for what you know is coming and whether or not they'll succeed or fail is relevant in the end because you get to understand their journey. And that's sort of the point of storytelling. I think you make a very good observation in that in both of these films, the vast majority of the people in the world that exist in these, not necessarily the central character in Constantine, are caught up in a world where things are happening with no explanation. It is all unknowable. They don't even necessarily know that they don't know. It is that existential or even postmodern. We can have these myths, but in the end, do these myths really explain things? So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. I'm going to pick one that I think people will expect and probably have already seen, which is hereditary. This shares a number of those emotions that it evokes. It has the same dire, ultimately tragic, but still compelling and larger than life ending. I also think that people might enjoy Stigmata, which is a slightly older movie, but it has the same paranormal investigation to it where the things are happening to people that even baffle the experts in that sort of expansion of what people think is possible or should be happening, we just have to experience what is happening. 
For me, I will begin with one that is incredibly familiar. That is The Exorcist, the 1973 William Friedkin film based on the book by William Peter Blatty, which is also about a little girl that does get possessed. In addition, I will recommend The Crazies, the 2010 film with Timothy Oliphant, which is about people in a small town who suddenly start becoming violent. And of course, I also recommend the director's first two films, The Chaser, his very violent crime thriller, and Yellow Sea, his political thriller. And for those who have not gotten into South Korean films, start getting into South Korean films. I would add to that one last one. This is not for the squeamish or the faint of heart. This is a very dark movie that should only be watched at your own discretion. But Martyrs. Martyrs is also a great comp for this, but it's much, much darker. It is a film that not only plays with bleakness, but just tosses you into the void and hopes you can swim. So what is next? What can we expect to see from you or what are you working on? I am just finishing up a feature script for a Bulgarian director. We're going to hopefully film it next year in Bulgaria. I also just finished a alternate dimension sci-fi script that is a finalist for Stage 32's sci-fi and fantasy script competition. I'm excited about that. I also just optioned the life rights for one of the coolest and most secret, because I'm keeping it private, true American stories that I've ever read. Sounds great. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, so I do have a Facebook consultation page called Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings, which covers issues about screenwriting and movies. I publish two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. I have published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, which can also be found on Amazon. And I am an amateur photographer, and you can find that on Instagram. The previous podcast was with writer and filmmaker Steve Weiss on Jaws and White Hunter Blackheart, both films about people obsessed with hunting down a wild beast. The next podcast will be with podcasters Anna Kaiser and Derek DeHanke, where we will discuss The Blues Brothers and the 1971 Japanese version of The Silence, both about two people who are on a mission from God. So without Jordan, I would like to thank you very much for being on my show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast.